Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast never knowingly ahead of the times. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey Corey. As promised, we're going to do a few podcasts themed around the future. So we're going to imagine that we were Minister for the Future in the UK government. What would we focus on? And the idea for this, Steve, came through a series of short essays that Nestor did with Prospect, and we'll stick that in the show notes for this one. Uh, and it's a thought experiment, essentially. There's 25 essays, including people like Sundar Katwala, Thomas Myers, Francis O'Grady, all writing about different areas of policy, which we'll come to. Um, maybe the first thing to start with is, should we have a minister for the future? So Sweden has one. Finland have a parliamentary committee for the future as well. And the Welsh government have a a well-being future for future generations. Yeah, I mean, I think the the core idea behind uh, having someone or a group of someones who are responsible for looking at specific issues that are not necessarily urgent in the here and now, but likely will be very important in the future, is a very sensible thing to have. My only issue is that at least in the, no- in the notion of this re- this particular report that Nestor have done, um, like the the issues that are being highlighted are very broad. Um, they cover all kinds of different areas, and I think actually that's an accurate reflection of what um, a a person a person who is trying to do this role would have to deal with. There's, there's just so many different potential things across so many different disciplines uh, diff- uh, that kind of involve lots of different departments. Um, which ultimately means if you just had a minister for the future, I think what you would uh, end up with is just a a couple, one, two, maybe three of these kind of areas being focused on and the rest just falling to the wayside because there's just not enough time in the day for one person to deal with all of these things given how complex, difficult, different uh, and varied these issues are. So... The core idea is there, but I do think you are probably looking at something more akin to that committee that you mentioned as a, as an idea as being a better way to do things. So Steve, as minister, has already taken over the bureaucracy. He's employed three junior ministers, a whole gang of civil servants, half of Whitehall is... I've promoted myself to a cabinet secretary level, basically. He's got yeah, 5,000 civil servants all working on this. It probably doesn't help that at the moment I'm reading White Heat, which is Dominic Sandbrook's book about the uh, well Britain between 1964 and 1970 so a lot of it is talking about the failures in planning of the Wilson government the failure of the Department for Economic Affairs they set up and the Ministry for Mintech I think that Tony Benn's Ministry of Technology that's very different because they were sort of about planning and this idea that I suppose a government department could sit in Whitehall and push various levers and get things to happen and that's not that's not quite how the ideas work, I suppose, is it? A lot of them are about setting up funds to deal with stuff, which will come a lot. There's a lot of hypothecated taxes, taxes, spoiler alert. Yeah, 
Yeah, there, 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 there absolutely is, and and also a lot of the ideas in the report can, like whilst we're like the the core notion of it is oh yeah we should have somebody thinking about this issue and like the minister for future for the future could be the sort of person that does it. Most of them could and should be handled by another department anyway. Like the Sundar talks about um, immigration and trying to take a three sixty degree view on on that and on people's public opinions of it and how do you have a immigration system that works etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, guess what? That should just be handled by the Home Office. You don't need a new minister for that. You've got um, workers' rights uh, things like Francis O'Grady from the TUC highlights and like the changes to employment and what that means for workers, et cetera, et cetera. Well, guess what? That's probably handled by biz. And uh, all of these things could already be handled by someone else within the government, within the current government makeup. It's just that they're not seen as a priority rather than anything else. So Steve, now as Minister for the Future, he's now got a Minister for the Future in every single government department. Absolutely, 100%. Uh, in effect... What you're talking about with all of these things is just a prospectus for a prime minister, uh, more than anything else. Except this isn't really what prime ministers deal with, I suppose, because yeah. as uh, politicians have a, I think it was, I think the the, the first Nesta essay calls it the, the sort of bias towards the present, which is a very science way of putting it. <laughs> I'm going to say. The other thing that the that first essay says is that actually the government can predict future trends at the moment, and I feel like. Obviously, they've read too many pop science books, like Black Swan. Is it Nicholas Taleb, I think? Is that the Black Swan? Or is that the um, Natalie Portman film? If, right. <laughs> I think. So, because so Nicholas Taleb, he plays a ballet dancer, doesn't he? And he writes a book oh, yeah, yeah. about that. Um, but essentially, what, what Nesta says is that because the, the Government Office for Science can does so much research into future trends and trying to find these Black Swans... Natalie Portman's actually that tends to lead to paralysis because there's essentially everyone's so scared of finding Nicholas Taleb in a ballet dancer's costume that nothing actually gets done <laughs> that is certainly one way of putting it yeah I mean there's there is definitely a notion um, when it comes to government kind of like looking into pretty much anything in that if you dig too deeply you will find a problem that needs to be fixed that's just the nature of government as you say, that could be a massive, massive problem, which maybe it's not a massive problem now, but it could very well be a massive problem in the future. Because it's a problem in the future rather than now, the the democratic system that we have means that there's that say that's a problem for another leader, another government, like for, for next term or, or whatever it might be, because there are more pressing things that we need to look at now, uh, and, or there are things that are more important to help us get re-elected now or elected now. So yeah, it, it is an interesting kind of like dilemma and dynamic that, that we find ourselves in with these sorts of areas. So would you focus on misinformation? I think misinformation is certainly something that does need to need to look be looked at. My thought process is if you are looking at something as a minister for the future, then actually that's a problem for the here and now rather than the, the future. Uh, this is what your bureaucratic empire on Whitehall, yes. you've got a minister in with risk government department, that, uh, culture, media and sport, isn't yeah, it, I suppose? Yeah. yeah, trying to ward off Bill Cash's amendment or welcome it, maybe. Yeah, who, indeed, who knows? We're uh, recording this on Thursday, listeners, so <laughs> delete is appropriate. 
the areas that you need to kind of focus on would be um, the impact of long-term thinking, the impact of kind of like future technologies on the economy and the workforce, because um, those two things are, are intrinsically linked. Um, so the best example of that currently is going to be the impact of AI on uh, on on the economy, on on people's jobs. Because like in theory, we're now at a stage where people could within the next decade or so, like AI could start taking people's jobs away. Um, how do you handle that? What is the is the response to it? You know, that that is the sort of thing that I feel like a minister for the future should be looking at because everybody knows that there's an elephant in the corner over there of AI, but no one wants to look at it or talk about it just yet because it's not quite an issue. But uh, at the moment, no one really is because it's just not an urgent, an urgent thing. Um, so if you're going to be a minister for the future, that's one area you definitely focus on because that is like the, the near future. Um, that, that will be happening in the next 10, 15 years. That is going to become an issue. Similarly to that, I'd be looking at, um, I'd be having the Ministry for the Future look at long, to, well, medium to long term infrastructure requirements, uh, both in terms of physical infrastructure, but as well as, as, well as digital infrastructure, um, and kind of like linking that and, and trying to effectively identify what the needs are in each of those areas, what skill sets we need for it, and then kind of linking it up to this AI area, for, for example. Anybody who loses their job um, as a result of AI, you then set up a training fund, for example, that gets them to, into the skill set that we know we need as part of the um, as part of the, the long term infrastructure uh, planning. The thing is, all of this is just basically an industrial strategy. Yeah, that's also it's just not very ambitious. No. <laughs> You're sort of back to maybe the DEA and. Ministry of Technology, but done slightly more better. Yeah. Um, apologies to George Brown and, and Tony Baird. Uh, I'm, I'm with Sonny Asoda's idea, which is the this idea of a drawdown fund. So the idea was that I think it was a, a pot of money that we are all entitled to of about 30 grand or something that you can use at any point in your life to retrain and reskill. So you might want to go to university, use it, and then dip into it later. You might just want to completely retrain later on. But actually, I think that sort of idea is just to try and encourage lifelong learning, which is something we're not really great at mm-hmm. in this country. One, one, 100%. One of the biggest issues you have in the British economy is obviously productivity. Uh, and one of the, kind of like the, the, the areas of weakness we have is that we do not upskill um, people particularly well, um, and that is that. That comes from a, a, a number of different areas. The government doesn't invest in it, and neither does business. Uh, businesses in the UK do not spend as much as other countries do in in training uh, their employees, which creates problems. Um, so yeah, like the notion of a drawdown fund, I think is is is, is interesting as a way to you know enable people to change what they're doing. Um, so that somebody almost it doesn't matter at what stage of life they are. So in terms of the skill section, the other the other two that was I found sort of interesting. So you mentioned Frances O'Grady. Mm-hmm. She had a charter of digital rights, uh, and the TUC I think have put that together. And again, that sort of it's the idea of you don't just have algorithms 
speaking to workers that you have you make sure that you have humans looking at the decisions that algorithms are making you make sure that they've got a, hu- a face-to-face person they can speak to 100 absolutely <laughs> because algorithms when you program them just inherit the biases of the programmer but and the issue is i can guarantee you it doesn't matter what the algorithm is when it get, go, goes live properly for the first time there will be a load of things you did not consider going uh, happening as a result of it so you need people constantly there checking it and changing it yeah so it's about having almost public scrutiny over the algorithm mm-hmm. and knowing what's going into it as algorithms are very much like sewers aren't they what yeah. comes into it very much determines what comes out absolutely and it's also then once that decision has been made by an algorithm you make sure there is someone to sense check it yeah um the other thing so margaret heffernan um her idea in the skills thing was for a future skills committee to try and work out what sort of skills is it that people are going to need so um are we going to need say more creative skills more people management skills in the future i'm always a little bit wary of this uh, because usually when people say what skills are needed for the future uh, people go, well, they all need coding. And I'm never sure if that's true because in the 19th century, no one would have said, you all need to know how to drive a steam train. Mm-hmm. And I'm just very sceptical about most changes to the curriculum, like, say, we're going to teach maths till we're 18. STEM is something that we as a country are behind on in a number of areas that, that I think is pretty uh, undebatable. But that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody needs to go into STEM. In fact, actually, if everybody does go into STEM fields, you end up with a very unbalanced economy. Like, the reality is, like, if everybody becomes an engineer, then think a lot of things, a lot of systems then don't work because engineers are trained to think and do things in one way, whilst, just as off the top of my head, people who do a business degree are trained to think and do things in another way. You need a variety of different styles and a variety of different thoughts and a variety of different experiences and skill sets in order to make society function. Actually, talking about white heat, this is the sort of argument that was happening 60 years ago with uh, people taking on Bridget C.P. Snow's argument that art students didn't care about science and that was a bit of a rehash of an argument that Thomas Hooks had had 50 years before so you know this isn't necessarily it's not new. new it's not new at all but this is the uh, uh, this is the core thing though like when we talk about what the skills we need are it's not just a case of what are the skills of the future yeah that's going to involve a lot of coding and things like that but it's also a case of what are we good at as a country right now why where are the employment where are the opportunities for us to double down and become you know, to borrow a turn of phrase from uh, from Boris Johnson's government, world beating, like How, and, and for deposing us, prime ministers. Yeah, for the UK, that's actually a lot of the creative sector. We have we talking ha- about reopening the Northern Ireland Protocol. <laughs> we actually have uh, have um, very strong um, like uh, 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 sectors in in areas like music, in areas like film, in areas like video game production. Like, these are not necessarily things that people might think about when they talk about the future of of jobs and things, but these are things we're very good at. We've already got little enclaves where you could grow them, and we've got the foundations of all of that there. But I can guarantee you nobody in government would sit there and go, yeah, we need more video game designers or graphic designers and, you know, uh, digital sculptors for video game models. So I suppose there's a couple of things with that, isn't there? One of them is... It's the thing with not having a rigidly planned economy like the DEA. There is yeah. no way that we could sit in our... Let's say we're a Stalinist minister for the uh-huh. future. Like No no Stalinist government in its right mind is going to have a quota of video game designers <laughs> and digital sculptures because that's just not really how 
a traditional planned economy is meant to work. Um, on the other hand, what the government could do in terms of, say, what the government could do in terms of arts funding, science funding, supporting music in schools. My The three areas I, I've written down here, uh, not quite as... Well, I, I, I've gone for a different level. So obviously you as Minister for the Future, you've taken over your government. You've put ministers in everywhere. You've got a whole team of civil servants. I imagine probably the the town of Crawley is just full of Minister for the Future people. I've come slightly different. Th- so, so the first thing I've written down is just climate. I, I'm seeing that in a, a sort of proper Green New Deal way. Yeah. There's a lot of investment in infrastructure, a lot of encouragement of walking, of cycling, of retrofitting homes, of dealing with the fact that we're going to flood in February, be 40 degrees in summer and freezing in the winter. And... Second thing I've written down is is mental health and loneliness. Actually, mental health is one of the things that was covered in in the Nesta, uh, in, in, in the Nesta survey with with Prospect. So Imran Khan, not that one, um, talked about the importance of uh, could we test psychedelics to see if they can fight depression. Don't know anything about that. I'm going to move swiftly on. But um, we talked about hypothecated taxes. So Alex Smith from um, a sort of care charity it says so mental health it's, it's a public health crisis it's a productivity crisis um, it costs the economy apparently £32 billion a year uh, because of absence and lower productivity and his solution was essentially if you put a 5p levy well not, not quite a solution but if you put a 5p levy on the 6 billion self-service transactions you have a year, that would give you a 150 million pound fund and you can fund projects around either research into uh, mental health and loneliness or essentially community projects to build social capital, like community football clubs, that kind of stuff, which I quite like yeah, as an I mean, idea. Yeah, the, as the economy changes, people more and more people end up working from home and that becomes more and more the, the standard. I do think one of the... Uh, not necessarily unforeseen outcomes, but one of the, the side effects of that is that there will be uh, a large number of people who, yeah, they're working from home, but if they live alone, like so it, it, it like can confirm that having been in that that situation can get rather lonely at points. And he's only got me for company listeners, so you uh, can imagine. Yeah, but, we're, yeah, but yeah, but half the time you're on the other side of the bunker and you refuse to talk to me. So there's only so many puns one grown man can take. <laughs> before he starts trying to blow up his own bunker. Um, but it's also, it's the changing way in which we're living, isn't it? So I think fewer people are getting married. So you're going to have more people living on their own or maybe living in a shared house with four or five people all on their own. There's evidence, I think in America, I don't know if this is true in Britain, but there's Amer- in America anyway, that people have fewer close friends than they used to. I think also people, people not just marrying less and living alone, but also having fewer children. And so you might end up with more lo- more only children and, and, and fewer sibling relationships. So I think there's a there's a whole knock-on of things, which I think means that loneliness is, is a... I think, and certainly older and retired people as well, I think there's been some really horrible stories about that, just people just wanting someone to talk to. Yeah. In terms of climate, uh, I think the young people would say the most out there idea was David King's idea to refreeze the Arctic by spraying salty water in the clouds of the Arctic and that brightens the sun and that would therefore reflect enough sunlight to maintain the ice on the sea. I think this is the sort of 
out there sci-fi Mr. Burns has put a giant dome over over Springfield thinking I'm here for um, I've no idea if that's feasible or not but it, it's a cool notion um. but absolutely and he says you wouldn't even need worldwide cooperation like COP you could just do it with a few uh, basically a few countries go rogue because <laughs> when's that ever gone wrong uh, and he basically says if we don't do it and Greenland melts and seas rise by 7 metres and that's a lot of metres yeah I mean this is um, I mean, is it blue sky thinking? I'm not entirely sure, but... But it's, it's salty sky thinking. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a whole section on healthcare, which isn't just mental healthcare. Another hypothecated tax from Sally Davis, a former chief medical officer. If you... So she says that the NHS at the moment is too focused on illness. It's not really about health prevention. It's not looking at long-term health. Therefore, have a national health bank, which is basically like a sovereign wealth fund. So... If you put a 1% levy on inheritance tax, you could look at long-term health measures. Effectively, that's just kind of uh, trying to find a way to fund and go back to the policies um, that were under under Labour, um, where you know gyms were free to go to and, and things like that. Right, um, cancel on gyms at least were, were free to go to for everybody, so that everybody could get to exercise and, and all of these sorts of things. So, like, it's not a bad idea. But again, like, so many of these just boil down to how do we fund this more than anything else? So. It's just the health stuff. I kind of found the food ideas interesting. Um, one of which, Marco Springman, proper free market, just price food properly, price it for all the negative externalities that cheap food should have, which is one of those, I can imagine the Minister for the Future taking that into Cabinet and going, no, I'm sorry, we don't want to lose the election. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it is very much one of those things. I mean, and depending on where you are in the world, like in, in the US, for instance, like eating healthily is ridiculously expensive. Mm. Um, there's a reason everybody goes and orders out all the time. It's because somehow it ends up being cheaper than actually going and buying fresh vegetables and fresh meat and buy- and cooking it all yourself. I don't understand how their economy has gotten to that point, but it has. Well, so the Thomasina Myers, her, I, I, I sort of knew this and I'd forgotten it, but a quarter of CO2 emissions come from farming. Unhealthy sort of processed foods kill more people a year than smoking. Yeah. Which I suppose is... I'm going to be optimistic, listeners, and say that's a measure of just how far we've come uh, in combating smoking. But her thing is essentially regenerative yeah. farming. Not far, another hypothecated tax from Christina Ardan was essentially you tax food profits and you give that money to 18 to 24-year-olds to decide how to improve the food environment in their area, which I love. I think that's really I think that's really sweet. I think that's really sweet. I also think giving that money to 18 to 24-year-olds who are working in the area would then not work. I feel there has to be some sort of proper accountability and democratic process involved. You, oh, could, yeah, but, you could get them... But yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, I think the main takeaway from, from all of this discussion from my end is actually the Minister for Future is probably just a part of the Treasury and his main job is trying to find how do we fund this stuff? <laughs> what, what can we tax to do this? third thing I had and the final thing we'll talk about probably social media algorithms this is where my ministers probably look very different so yours is taking over the UK government <laughs> one, one department at a time well, yeah I'm essentially going to be jetting round Henry Kissinger style all these governments trying to get international cooperation to clamp down on harmful social media algorithms yeah I'm the Prime Minister's special envoy having to jet all over the place <laughs> Conveniently, when test matches and Elvis Costello concerts are on at the same time as these ministerial visits. Uh, oh, the abuse of power. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, social media algorithms absolutely something that needs to be done. I mean, I'm, I have a somewhat simplistic view of most of this stuff anyway, just because my opinion is if you treat the social media websites like the publishers that they are, despite the fact that they claim they're not, that will probably go quite a long way for them actually solving most of these issues themselves because then they will be financially liable for the, for what goes out on them. And yes, that means YouTube and uh, YouTube might need to uh, hire a obscene number of moderators to start trying to actually make it, make sure they have a decent moderation policy. But, that's their problem. The final hypothecated tax we're going to talk about in this <laughs> podcast, with the, as many as we had last year, very exciting. Jeff Morgan is a professor at UCL. He talks about proportional marginal revenue, which I'm going to... Well, so the idea is essentially that you tax marginal revenues, which in case there's... Uh, if any economists, please stop listening while I try to explain it. So, But essentially the idea is that if you've got a film, say, yeah. and... Once you've re or Netflix or Meta or whatever, once you've covered all of the operating systems costs, mm-hmm. anything above that, any new customer you get, that is a windfall of cash. That's your profit margin, right? Marginal revenue, so you tax that, and all the surplus from that can go into. How's, how's that different from corporation tax or anything like that? Because that, that's essentially essentially what a corporation tax But is. I suppose it's trying to get... So I think his argument is trying to get around the fact that a lot of these big tech companies don't pay much corporation tax. Right, right, right. I get you. So they're trying to do, define a different way. Get the logic. I think like it's coming from a good place and a good idea. <laughs> the, the notion of taxing revenue rather than profits in any form, I feel it's quite horrific um, and dangerous, even if you even if you are going into it with, with, with best intentions. I think it's the problem of how do you get around the fact that these companies don't really pay tax and therefore... Yeah, I mean, well, I, mean I think ultimately with those sorts of things, it boils down to how are they doing it? Because you've got, you've got... So Amazon versus, say, Google are very interesting kind of dynamics here. Um, Google goes out of its way to just kind of do your old, you might not do your old classic. It's just like, oh, I'm moving my money around. It's going off into this bank account in the Bahamas, this one into the Canary Islands or whatever, you know, and it's, it's, it's all over the place. Um, they're doing more tax avoidance. Amazon, for instance, the reason they don't, they, they tend not to spend, have any taxes is because they spend all of their money. So, for instance, for years and years and years, they didn't actually operate a significant uh, profit margin at all. They were bringing in millions and millions, if not billions in revenue, but they were also spaffing it up the wall on all kinds of random projects. Really, it was only when the Amazon web servers became like the dominant kind of like infrastructure for the, uh, for the, uh, for the backbone of the internet that they actually suit that as a company, they really started to just turn enough of a profit that they were just like, oh no, we can't get around this anymore. Mm. So there are different ways you can you can kind of get around it. Both are avoiding paying taxes. One is, in theory, maybe more beneficial if it's to the economy as a whole, if it's being done correctly. So for instance, if Amazon was taking all of that money investing it in its employees or in training or projects or, or whatever. Which is definitely, really, definitely oh, yes, doing, isn't it? Absolutely doing all it's of that. It's definitely not getting Jeff Bezos to the moon. Yeah. 
but this is the thing it ends up kind of through creative accounting going into all of the kind of places as well at the same time I, I, again I think the solution to that sort of problem is it's old school more than kind of like new new radical thinking it's going to be international agreement to count down on tax avoidance and tax evasion um, closing your loopholes getting ahead of the loopholes and just having you know in the UK mm. UK's instance massively simplifying the tax code given we've got one of the most complicated tax codes in the world uh, and we probably do just need to kind of zero base it all uh, and just go and kind of redo it from the ground up so that it's fit for the 21st century Wow, so Steve's now taking over the Treasury as well. There's no government department the Minister of Future is. Obviously. Actually, you've already taken over the Treasury. Yeah, I've already taken over the Treasury yeah. at least three times over. Like, as I said, all of this is just the prospectus for you've, a Prime Minister. You've, you've somehow managed to... Well, actually, no, you've, you've made the Treasury somehow more important than it ever was. It's like <laughs> twice the power of Gordon Brown in the Treasury. No one else can do anything. All of the power, all of the power none of the accountability. Well, we should probably end there, shouldn't we? Oh, that's a terrible thing to end on, but all right. If you want us to have all the power to recall things to you, but without any of the accountability of actually recording it. <laughs> yeah, you can go to patreon.com slash not enough champagne, where you can join our backers over there, our dearly beloved champagners, uh, who will uh, gain the benefits of uh, you know early episodes, unique episodes that we put out on there for them. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash not enough champagne. Our Twitter handle is at no champagne pod. James Cram designed our logo. You can follow, follow him on Twitter at James Cram and Dave, De- Dave Depper compost our theme tune, Plucky Good Times. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting. Mm-hmm.